morning again, everyone. And welcome to the second day of our retreat on the eight realizations of great beings. My sound okay? Just checking. Thank you. So what does this sutra invite us to do wholeheartedly? To wholeheartedly recite and meditate on these eight realizations of the great beings. So that's exactly what we're doing this weekend. Reciting them, meditating on them, sitting them, singing them, walking them, and sharing them. So, who are these great beings that we've been reading about? It's clear from the words of the discourse itself, these eight realizations of the, are the discoveries of great beings, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. When we recite and meditate on these eight realizations, we join ranks with all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas past and present. And together we embody practicing the way. We are all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And, and what is the way? The sutra spells it out clearly. It is the way of understanding and love. The way of understanding and love, the Tao, the path of awakening. It's the path unfolding before us and in us with each breath, with each heartbeat, with each step, and with each sigh, the path unfolds as we eat and as we work and as we rest, as we rest wholeheartedly. Those who practice diligently the way of understanding and love are indeed great beings. That's you. And that's me, we, we enter our, we enter be with all the great beings. Your practice is my practice and my practice is your practice. This is the way, we are the way. There's no way that is outside of yourself. You brought the way with you. The way of understanding and love is right here where you sit. Open it. Breathe it. Open to it. Breathe it in with every inhale and grace the world, grace the world with every exhale. The world needs you to be you.
So one practice that I'd like to invite you in today into is the practice of seeing and then seeing through. The practice of seeing what is there and then seeing through it. So let's turn our minds to the sutra. And by the way, I'll interchangeably use the words uh, sutra and discourse. So taking us back a little bit, for those who have been in the practice period and bringing you up to date, those who are joining us for the retreat, as I said on May 4th, the very first night of the practice period, the whole of the Dharma is contained in these eight realizations. The whole of the Dharma is right here. And if we look deeply into them, seeing them and then seeing through them, then we can also see that each individual realization contains within it each and every other realization. The sutra itself is interbeing. The sutra itself demonstrates interbeing. So we've been studying and meditating on this discourse for 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 over the past six months. And in the process, I've noticed a number of key themes. Key themes that run through the sutra. So today, I'd like to talk about four of those themes. Just four. There are many themes, but we're going to take up just four. I'll try sharing my screen. So these are the four themes. All eight realizations have the absolute ring of truth. The fires of birth and death are raging, causing endless suffering everywhere. There's inestimable value in having few desires. And liberation from the fires of birth and death and from suffering is possible. Liberation is possible. So let's take the themes one at a time and explore them. All eight realizations ring true to us. They have the absolute ring of truth. As we read, studied, and meditate on the eight realizations, not one of us said, well, number such and such doesn't really ring true to me. They all ring true. And that's amazing. It was written over 2,000 years ago. But it's still fresh and relevant. It's as true and relevant today as it was then. The Dharma 
is timeless. The second theme is the fires of birth and death are raging, causing endless suffering everywhere. What a word picture, hmm? In my mind, I'm seeing the fires over the Western US these past few years. The fires of birth and death have, have a scorched earth policy. They burn everything in their path. They're raging out of control. Suffering is raging out of control. Birth and death and suffering pervade this entire discourse. They're either mentioned specifically or alluded to in every single realization. You can see them there. So we might take the suffering of birth and death as metaphorical, as a metaphor. One moment dies as the next moment is born. And then that moment dies as another moment is born. The sutra says that human beings are always in the process of change, constantly being born and constantly dying. Physiologically speaking, the body we had a moment ago metaphorically died with that moment. We will never take that particular breath again. The composition of our blood also changed with that breath. In countless ways, this body is not the same body it was two moments ago. And yet, it's not a different body. But we behave as if we're a separate, permanently abiding self. And the first realization reminds us that we're not. Composed of five aggregates, the first realization reminds us that human being is empty and without a separate self. Hmm. Human being is empty and without a separate self. For, for those relatively new to our Zen tradition, Thich Nhat Hanh coined the word interbeing to express this notion of emptiness of a separate self. This emptiness of a separate self we call non-self. When we look with the eyes of inner being, we see that non-self means we are not separate and discrete. If not separate, then we inter-are. Not only with everyone, but with everything. That we are not separate, discrete, and independent, an independent self, that's a good thing. This sutra says that simply meditating on this alone releases us from the round of birth and death. 
awareness that we're not a separate self. Ah, liberation is right there. The first realization also reminds us that the whole world is, is and everything in it is impermanent. The whole world and everything in it is impermanent. You know, impermanence makes us uncomfortable for lots of reasons. But one of those reasons is it reminds us that we're not in control. No matter what we might do to try and stop it, impermanence happens. Uh, early in our practice period, several of us admitted to um, let's just say we admitted to expending a lot of energy trying to keep things under control. Keeping things under control. That's true for a lot of us. We spend our time trying to keep things under control. And since the moment of the Big Bang, Nothing has ever been or will ever be under control. Control is an illusion. It's a delusion. Impermanence kicks the footstool of control right out from under us and shoves us headlong into the flames of suffering. The sutra reminds us that by meditating on our impermanent non-self nature, we can be released from the round of birth and death. So like just do an exercise for just a few moments. Just close your eyes and touch impermanence. Allow impermanence. Impermanence is not a concept. Impermanence is a practice. So practice impermanence. Notice the arising of a thought. What's he mean by impermanence as a practice? And that thought just flows away. Our heart is beating. One beat after the next, arising and falling. So you can come back. So does the sutra uh, actually say we're released physically? Um, or at least from physically being born and physically dying. Personally, I don't think so. Um, our very enlightened Zen ancestors keep dying after all. They were very enlightened. So rather than, it's that we're metaphorically released from the suffering, from suffering the fear of birth and death. We see birth and death and see through it to a deeper reality. 
We see through it to, through this relative dimension of time and space, birth and death, to another truth beyond time and space, before time and space. And some of our Zen ancestors taught that our inherent Buddha nature is not born. The word they use to describe our awakened Buddha nature is unborn. Our unborn Buddha nature is who we truly are. What is unborn cannot die. We see clearly the delusion of a, a permanent and fixed identity. We see it, and then we see right through it to our original unborn nature. That alone, if there weren't anything else, that would be enough to free us from the raging fires of birth and death. But wait, there's more. Another theme of the sutra is there's inestimable value in having few desires. Suffering is the logical consequence of being enslaved by our desires. That's a theme that's repeated throughout the discourse. We think satisfying our desires will quell our suffering, quench our thirst for more and more. But just the opposite is true. We become enslaved to our desires. The second realization says that more desire brings more suffering. Satisfying our desires is addictive. We need a bigger and bigger fix. What is the guidance of the sutra? That those with little desire and ambition are able to relax. Our body and mind free from entanglement. The third realization say that bodhisattvas know the value of having few desires. We're able to live simply and peacefully and devote ourselves to practicing and realizing the way. When we practiced not being seduced and enslaved by our desires, it creates a sense of freedom, liberation, personal power, personal power. So I invite you to watch how desire works in the mind, in your life. Make a, make a conscious effort to practice not being seduced, enslaved, and manipulated by the desires that constantly pop in your head. When John gave his talk on desire, I spent the next week practicing being really aware. Almost in every moment, the desire was arising and falling. Oh, I want this, or I want this different, or I need to change the, this or that. So I'll give you an example of a place where I practice. Um, I had a sugar addiction, a lifelong sugar addiction. And I, about in the end of February, I took up this, this diet that is a low carb diet, no sugar diet. I had been a person that's a week. My latest kind of guilty pleasure was chocolate covered raisins. And every time I would pass our pantry, I'd pop in, grab a handful of raisins. So I noticed, I practiced by noticing the desire. 
arising, being there. And if I could just say no to it, if I could just wait, the thought passed, the urge passed. So I invite you to take up as a practice watching how desire arises and falls. Another theme is the liberation from the fires of birth and death and from suffering, from the suffering they cause. Liberation is possible. First, I invite you to internalize the realizations. They don't have to be the word for word, but, but what is your sense of the realization? We're going to have a chance to practice that. So the very things that stop us and block us from liberation are the very doors and pathways to our liberation. As long as we can see them for what they are and then see through them. Our own suffering can be our best teacher. Some of us have been doing this a long time and we know as we progress in the practice, we learn to turn toward our suffering instead of away from it. The fourth realization is indolence is a roadblock to practice. Right effort is a path that leads right through laziness. Another word for indolence is laziness and right effort is a path that leads right through it. Resting is not laziness. One of our practice period folks told me that she feels guilty when she stops, kicks back in her easy chair and just listens to books on tape. And she's one of the hardest working people I know. We need rest. We need not feel guilty for resting. We all rest in different ways. Rest in a way that works for you. But with laziness, right effort is our pathway through and out of it. You know, once, once almost 20 years ago, I asked one of my teachers, Roshi Jack Jeffy, so is right effort doing just enough and a little bit more? He looked across the, the interview room at me and said, for you, right effort is doing just enough and a little bit less. Most of us here struggle more with doing too much rather than doing too little. Keeping ourselves too busy is just as much a cause of the endless round of birth and death as doing too little. In, in fact, in a different way, In fact, it's a different way. Doing too much is a different way of doing too little of the right things. So if you're a person who tends to do too much, ask yourself, why am I running? What am I running from? What am I running to? 
three weeks ago, I promised you my own definition of ignorance. So I'm moving on to the realization on ignorance. Ignorance implies a willful, intentional denial or disregard of what is true. I say avidya, ignorance, is a lack of curiosity. We see ignorance for what it is. Here's it again. We see it for what it is and we see through it by cultivating curiosity. We liberate ourselves when we regard the realization of perfect understanding to be our only career. So what is perfect understanding? During the practice period, I've developed a, a definition that works for me, and so I'm gonna put it up so you can see it. The realization of perfect understanding is through intimate, direct experimentation coming to understand how the mind operates and then working to free yourself from enslavement to it. Through intimate, direct experimentation coming to understand how the mind works, how the mind operates, and then working to free yourself from enslavement to it. I am, does everybody remember what EST is? Remember EST, the Earhart Seminar Training? Well, one of the things that I did EST, <laughs> and one of the things they teach is the mind thinks and you think the thoughts it thinks. The mind thinks and you think the thoughts it thinks. What are some examples of experimentation? When cold or hot, notice what's happening in the mind and body. Watch your thoughts. Watch how desire arises immediately and wants you to change the temperature or change where you are. When hungry, notice what's happening in your mind or body. What's arising? Be curious. Curiosity is the antidote to ignorance. Ignorance is not about being uh, unintelligent. It's about a lack of curiosity. So bring your curiosity forward. When anger arises, watch what your mind does. And then I, I'm going to share with you something my teacher said to me across the cushion years ago when I was kind of going on about something and thought that um, actually what it was is that uh, I was so uncomfortable sitting, I was pretty sure I, 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 I was not going to be able to continue sitting very long. I was going to have to move into a chair. 
And she looked across the, the cushion to me and said, Mike, that's just a thought. That's just a thought. When, when we think, when we think, when the mind thinks, and then we think the thoughts it thinks, we don't have to believe its stories. We don't have to give in to it. We don't have to be enslaved by it. Another case of seeing and seeing through. See what stops us and enslaves us. Whatever it is, we see through it to free ourselves from enslavement. So today, we very quickly explored four themes in the discourse on the eight realizations of great beings. Putting up again so you can see them. All eight realizations have the ring of absolute truth, or have the absolute ring of truth. The fires of birth and death are raging, causing endless suffering everywhere. We can meditate on impermanence. Impermanence is a practice, not an idea. There's an estimable value in having few desires. Meditate on the arising and passing away of desire. And then the fourth theme, liberation from the fires of birth and death and from the suffering they cause is possible. Meditate. Watch how the mind works. Not just in meditation. Watch how the mind works when you're standing in line at the grocery store. Whenever you have a moment to wait, if you hear a bell of mindfulness. So there's a lot of dark imagery in this sutra. Ignorance and indolence and laziness and poverty and disease, desire and the fires of birth and death and suffering. In the context of the sutra, wholeheartedly invites us to see what's there and then see through what's there. It means that while this sutra enumerates and quite literally itemizes humanity's darkest afflictions and brokenness, there's something more. Something more is true. We see clearly all these ills of humanity and a groaning earth right there. We see them and we see through them to a, a deeper universal truth about ourselves and everyone else. Something eternal. Something immense and boundless and unborn. And that something is our birthright.
It's not something we have to work for or shoot for to be worthy of. It's ours whether we know it or not. The birthright is ours whether we understand it or not. It's ours whether we want it or not. It's ours whether we claim it or not. It is complete and full and whole just as it is, just as you are. It's thoroughly here and now, yet it can seem leagues away. It's snow in a silver bowl. It's the sound of one hand and the spray on the tip of each branch of coral reflecting the light of the moon. Every step is equal in substance, never getting closer, yet never farther away. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. There's a reality even prior to heaven and earth. Indeed, it has no name. It has no form, much less a name. Eyes, eyes fail to see it. It has no voice for ears to detect. Absolutely quiet, and yet illuminating in a mysterious way, it allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. It is Dharma, truly beyond form and sound. It is the way, having nothing to do with words. Those last words are from the 14th century Zen master Daiokokushi. It is the way, having nothing to do with words. So we find ourselves back where we started, with the way of understanding and love. May we all awaken. May we all awaken arm in arm, hand in hand, friends together on the path. Thank you.